Hello everyone, welcome to Trip In. I'm Leo Gomez, your host, and today we're going to be interviewing James Moncrief, an Overland tour leader who will tell us all about his experiences through different continents. I hope you guys enjoy it and let's have fun. Let's see. Hello, James. Hey, Leo. How's it going? How are you, man? I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you, you here on the um, on the podcast, man. It's thank happening. <laughs> um, yeah. So today, okay, we will um, would like to share. Well, we'd like you to share your many experiences, you know, on the road and stuff, and talk about you and what you do and stuff. So let's start uh, with you introducing yourself. Uh, hi, I'm James. Uh, I'm 26, I'm from Bristol in England, um, and I, I like to go on adventures, I, I've lived in a few places over the world, uh, I lived in Indonesia for a year, I worked as a scuba diving uh, guide, a dive master, uh, I've done a lot of rock climbing and mountaineering, that's my real passion, that's uh, really what I'm, what I'm all about, uh, I'll actually, as you can see, yeah, you can see in the background, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then I've also worked for Dragoman uh, for a year in South America and then in Africa for three months. All right. uh, and that's where I was when the pandemic hit. Oh, so you were in Africa when the pandemic back hit? to uh, the UK. And we've been in lockdown ever since. It's almost a year now. How's that, how that to be? Where, where were you in Africa when the pandemic hit? Ethiopia. Ethiopia. And how, like... Can you tell us how the, how that was? Like when you found out about the pandemic, and you're like, "Well, what the fuck to do?" <laughs> uh, well, obviously, it had been it had been building up in the news for a while. Yeah. And uh, so we had heard about it. I was working with a girl called Louise, who yep. uh, was amazing. Uh, and we were in Sudan. Uh, I remember we were doing a loop in Sudan that's about a week in the desert. Uh, so with no internet or anything, and before going into the desert, we'd heard about the virus and stuff in in China. And when we came out a week later, and we turned on our phones and stuff, uh, Italy had fallen essentially, you yeah. know, because uh, that was one of the first countries to go in Europe. We had two Italian passengers, and you know, we'd said goodbye to them, and then going back to Italy, and it was all suddenly like a much bigger thing. And then I remember the next day you were hearing uh, in the UK here when they had the, the horse races and they were, we were seeing pictures of all these people and uh, we thought it was crazy um, because obviously it hit Europe. So yeah. And then, you know, uh, we, I moved to Ethiopia with Louise and uh, I was supposed to be then moving down to Zimbabwe to run another truck. So we'd parked up our truck already and cleaned it up and everything and got it secure. Uh, and then flown from Gondar to the capital of Ethiopia. Okay. We had no passengers, uh, but at this point, you know, me and Louise had been working together for a few months. We got on really well, and so we went out for a curry because we were splitting up. Yeah. Uh, and then the email went out, and uh, you know, we we checked our, our phones, and they were saying park up your trucks and come home, and it gone to the whole company, and and that was you it. Know, we packed up our bags and went to the airport because we, you know. And we wow. were back suddenly at home in lockdown out of nowhere. It was crazy. That's insane, man. So um, you, how long were you in Africa? You said three months? Three months, yeah. And how was that experience, uh, man? Yeah. Uh, amazing. I loved Africa. Yeah. It's an incredibly interesting place. Where did you guys start and stuff? 
Uh, I went from Ethiopia and did a, like a loop around Ethiopia and ran trips in Sudan as well and then down into Kenya. Okay. And what's the situation in Sudan right now? Uh, well, so I mean, Sudan like, because like, they, they've been in... They had a revolution not that long yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. So politically, it was very interesting to be there and we did have some really interesting conversations with, with some people that we met. Sudan was an incredibly friendly place, okay. utterly different to Ethiopia. They really? border each other, but they're almost extreme opposites. Oh, wow. Uh, Ethiopia is full of people and animals, and there's like a ridiculous number. I think it's like 107 million people live in Ethiopia. Wow. You, you know about it when you're driving around, you know. You drive for hundreds of kilometers. You never stop seeing people. They're constantly walking their animals down the roads and stuff, and you're constantly going through little villages. There's people yeah. everywhere. And then Sudan is the utter opposite. It's empty. It's all sandy deserts and stuff. Yeah. I mean, me and Louise drove all the way across Sudan to the border in Egypt over about three days, and we barely saw anything other than dusty sand. But in its own way, Sudan, I loved Sudan. The people were so super, super friendly, hospitable, so interested, and just you know wanted to talk talk to you and share things with you, a cup of tea and stuff. And yeah, and I guess, I guess they don't get to see that many foreigners. No, definitely not. It's not, uh, you know, especially when you're driving through little small villages in the middle of nowhere and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, we can't, we'd camp out, out just like in the common ground kind of thing in a small village and people would come up to us and talk to us all the time. And That's amazing. And what yeah, about... I really, I really, love, really enjoyed Sudan. It was an incredible, incredible and, uh, country. How, how's the food in, in Africa or in, in those countries you've been to? Um, the falafel and like hummus and things like that after I'd been in South America for a year yeah. and uh, I mean I, there's a lot of good food in South America barbecues and everything and I, I love that but it was nice to change to almost like a more Middle Eastern uh, okay. diet which was cool it was very very different to South America did you try I, anything I did well. you try anything local I, I always try the local food yeah of course the local food is the best food but I mean do um, they have any like any particular dish that they do that you found interesting and stuff? Uh, well, in Ethiopia, they've got some very interesting food for sure. It's called injera, and that's the real local custom. Uh, it's like almost like a, it's sour. It's fermenting. It's like a pancake, almost okay. mixed with a crumpet. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's, you have it with like a curry, and it's like a big pancake that's all folded up. And oh, it's wow. full of air pockets, like a crumpet from where yeah. it's actually fermenting, you know? And uh, it's got a very distinctive taste and smell. Okay, but is it good? Uh, it, well, it's an acquired taste. I enjoyed it. I okay. got used to it. It's not something that I'd want to eat as much as an Ethiopian eats it. They seem to eat it <laughs> you know, three times a day sometimes. They love it. It's everywhere. And the smell is something, something interesting for sure. Yeah, and... Um, sorry, go on. I did enjoy it. It's good food, yeah. Yeah, and in and, and Africa... Um, Obviously, there's a lot of, uh, you know, we hear a lot about the poverty and stuff. And um, did you come across any of that? And how was that experience yeah, for you? For sure, in a way that um, uh, some things did make me really sad. Uh, like seeing little villages and stuff that you drive through. And they, they have like fields of plastic outside them now. Oh, wow. You know, that wouldn't have been a thing 50 years ago because plastic wasn't around like it is today all disposable packaging everywhere and all the goats are eating it and stuff like that and kids playing in it and it's just a field of 
of rubbish. Yeah. That's not going to go away for how long does it take for all oh, the no. plastic to degrade? Yeah. And that's not been a, a problem in the history of the thousands of people, like years that people have been living like they have there in Africa, you know? And now it's just, that was very sad. Yeah. Uh, I remember. Sudan is a very poor country as well. They were in the cities and stuff in Khartoum. You saw a lot of that abject poverty like straight in front of you. Yeah, because I had I had that you know how can I say a culture shock could be right when I when I was in Colombia and I was I took a van a transfer from Cartagena to Santa Marta and that was like an eight hours drive or something and halfway there was this. I've never seen like that extreme poverty in my in my life, you know, and that made me think a lot. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, yeah. It was like I'm it was like I felt, I felt, I, really I, felt I mean, yeah. you were working. Obviously, it's, it's a different situation, but I felt a little bit guilty, you know, me being there, traveling and spending money and yeah. stuff. And there's like not being able to yeah help them in yeah. you know a, a real meaningful way. Yeah. So, how did you do? Do you have any yeah, sort that of experience? That? It brings to mind uh, in Jakarta, in Indonesia. I remember me and my friend Jimmy, who I lived there. We were lost. Actually, <laughs> we had no our phones had run out of battery, and we couldn't remember the name of our hotel. Oh, wow. <laughs> we were on the public transport system, trying to like you know just go like turn around, trying to find somewhere we rec recognised in, in this huge city, and uh, we walked under this bridge at one point down by a river, and there was like a slum community down there and the river was just full of sewage it stank it's blue horrible blue gray and straight above it is the huge banking skyscraper and the huge police skyscraper wow and all these kids are just playing in the rubbish by the, yeah. by the shitty and we walked through it and just you know yeah it feels weird doesn't it and um but tell me about indonesia then how how did you end up going there I went there when I was 18 for the first time, or maybe 19 with uh, my, my ex, you know, my girlfriend at the time. Okay. And uh, we spent two months there, and I just decided that when I got home, I wanted to save up my money and come back and stay out there for as long as I could. So, you know, I, I, my friend Jimmy got inspired by the idea, and we decided to do our dive master qualification. Yeah. Uh, so you did the so full did course there, yeah. there. Sorry? You did the full course there. Yeah, it takes about three months to. Uh, um, so I'd already dived before, uh, so I had my advanced course. But Jimmy had never been underwater. Oh wow! He's kind of guy that like he just knew he wanted, he would love it, and he actually paid for the full dive master course. It takes three months without ever having been scuba diving, which was brave of him. But that's just the kind of guy he is, you know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> he's a cool guy. I love Jim. And then, so uh, you 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 decided to stay there for a year, just. Yeah, so we did the course in um, Manta Dive on Kilier, which was really good. They were a great company. And yeah. we worked kind of on a freelance basis there, uh, just guiding people. And then we went on a, a holiday to um, Komodo. My girlfriend came out because she was in England. I was going yes. long distance. Uh, Komodo. She came out. And uh, we went to Komodo Islands. And uh, we got on uh, on a boat there. And... I mean, we, we were really poor. We chose the most budget outfit yeah. you could come across. And oh, it was awful. They, I remember they 
he put like a fin on me and it was just like my foot was flopping around in it because it was all ripped and I was like why are you showing a client a broken fin to try on this is ridiculous and so sort of like cowboy but it's very expensive to dive in Komodo and so we went and made the most of it and just by sheer chance the guy who owned the boat who lived in Jakarta you know miles and hundreds of miles away would flown out at the same time to go on his boat for three days and go diving. So we would get in chat to him over the three days. He kind of, you know, and at the end he we like he offered we he offered us the job essentially. Yeah. So we got back after the three days and we had been talking about it for three days, but he hadn't actually, you know, offered it outright kind of thing. And then he, he called us and said he wanted to meet to meet us. So we go to the jetty in the harbour and we get on the little, you know, the little boat, little dinghy thing takes you out to the to the big ship. And, you know, we were going to a job interview on a boat. We were 21 and, like, we were, we just thought it was amazing. Yeah. That's a cool story, <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, we got a job working in Komodo, which was an absolutely incredible location. So, to you, stayed, so you stayed in, did you live in Komodo Island for a bit? Yeah. Uh, we lived with a guy who was uh, an absolute hero. He was a policeman in the community. He was our, he was our landlord. And okay. uh, a guy called Ito. Yeah, and he was one of the craziest people I've ever met, honestly. <laughs> you liked him. He was absolutely nuts. And did, you have, did you have any encounters with the big Komodo dragons? Yeah, but they mostly, um, they mostly hang out by the restaurant. That was my experience. I think they, maybe they get fed. Oh. <laughs> I went tracking on the islands quite a bit, and um, we didn't, I didn't see them other than around the, kind of the area where the yeah. human habitation is on Komodo. Fuck, man, there might be scary. I'm sure there's some living out wild. Like, you know, I'd, we'd go trekking on some of these islands when we'd... Because we'd be out on the boat. It was liverboard situation. You'd be on the boat for like a week, maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you'd travel all around this big marine national park, choosing dive sites and, you know, yeah. going exploring the islands and stuff. And you'd take the customers on the islands. I'd always go and take a, find a big stick, you know, because that's what I'd seen the guides on the Komodo island doing. Just a, bit, a big stick. stick. <laughs> <laughs> but how big is the how big is that animal, man? He's like what two meters long, maybe. And it's the size of their head. That's what gets me. Like, it's the their head is like armored. Their neck is chunky. It's not oh. not yeah. like a monosaurid, you know. It's much scarier. I wasn't expecting them to be so scary, but they are. They are. Uh, and and uh, is there like records of them killing locals and stuff? Um. I'm sure they they have killed people. People yeah. have died. It's happened quite a bit. Some of them travelers, some of them locals. What was quite interesting, we found out that uh, it was originally um, it was a prison camp on the the island, basically mm -hmm. for a long time. They'd go and put people that uh, you know who have been caught doing bad things or whatever on and put them on the island. <laughs> that was like the justice system, and uh -huh. they eventually became a small kind of community. And like there was a town and like a community living on the island. Yeah, so the prison's not there anymore. You know, recently, you know, 50 years ago, tourists started showing up more and more and more, and now it's like, you know, it's yeah. not famous. There's something about the islands, man. You know, back in the day, I think they used to build prisons in islands because, um, you know, in, in just Ilha Grande, which is close to Paraty, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a prison there as well. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then it's quite um, trying to keep people, you know, confined on an. It's hard to get off the island, isn't it? You gotta. Yeah, and also Alcatraz, the, the Devils, the Devils Island, or the Devils, the Penal Colony in um, 
Where was it? It's in uh, Suriname. Oh, there's one there as well. Yeah, that was that was quite interesting. Yeah, and then, and then there's Alcatraz, and, you know. Yeah, exactly. Those, that's crazy. And um, okay, then so when you started overlanding, uh, what? Okay, what was the motivation for you to go try and get a job like this? Um, I. I think you got stuck, man. Hello, you back? Yeah, I got you. Okay, again. So, what was the motivation uh, for you to get a job like uh, overland leading routes? Uh, when I was twenty-three. Um, I was working in Bristol in a, a nomad travel health clinic, which is that we had nurses working there giving vaccinations and stuff. At this point, I'd already lived in Indonesia and come back and started to do uh, a lot more climbing and uh, started doing some proper mountaineering expeditions. Uh, and that was my focus at the time. And then I got this manager and she was new. She came in and she'd just come straight from working for Dragoman. Okay. Um, So she t I heard all these stories from her about big orange trucks driving around Africa. And I just, you know, it was such a romantic image in my mind of like, you know, on safari in a big truck, yeah. driving it off road kind of thing. And so I looked up, looked it up and, and then I looked at the application and you had to be 25. So I wasn't old enough. Uh, you know, I'd only had my license a year at that yeah. point as well. And we just started driving a car, let alone a truck. And, uh, So, you know, I just put it to the back of my mind and carried on doing what I was doing, which was, I was all about climbing. I think that was 2016. And so that year I went to Norway in March uh, and we spent 10 days crossing the Southern Lingen Alps, right okay. in the very far north of Norway. So a climbing uh, expedition. That was an amazing trip. Yeah. And then, uh, and then later in the summer that year, uh, myself and Simon, uh, a friend of mine, we went as a two-man team to Kyrgyzstan. Oh, wow. I climbed a 7,000-meter mountain, 7,134 meters. It's Lenin Peak on the Tajikistan-Kyrgyzstan border. Yeah, wow, that's insane. That how was, that how was many incredible. days did that take you? 16 days to reach the summit. 16 days? From the day we the base camp, not continuously climbing up. No, yeah, of course, yeah. We were going up and down, and we had rest days and stuff like that. But because it was just the two of us, uh, like, you know, we had to move all our kit first 12 kilometers to the advanced base camp at the foot of the mountain over oh, 5,000 meter pass. Now, that first day was killer. I remember, you know, not being fully acclimatized. You know, we got into the base camp valley, which is already at 3,700 meters. Uh, and, you know, the next morning we went for a little uh, like look around and then packed up our kit to move it to the, the ABC. And yeah, it was, it was about 12 kilometers away up a, over a big 5,000 meter pass. And we had to carry something like 50 kilo, kilograms of kit between the two of us. Wow. Sorry, like, not between the two of us, 100k of kit between the two of us. And I remember putting my bag down at the end of that day, finally at the top of the foot of the mountain. You know, we're at the foot of the glacier. I can see the huge north face stretching, you know, more than 1,000 meters of ice going vertically upwards. Basically, wow. In front of me this huge wall and I just remember being utterly spent thinking how on earth are we going to get up there you know <laughs> utterly ridiculous idea 
but we kept plugging away day by day, you know, and like adjusting the plan uh, as we went and just working out what we were going to do the next day, every night, and looking after each other. We yeah. went and climbed another mountain, a 5,000 meter mountain on the other side of the valley and slept on top of there. Uh, there was actually a small thunderstorm rolled past us whilst we were in the tent on the top of that mountain. Wow. <laughs> that was an interesting experience. Inside the tent, obviously, we've been in there for three, a few hours, just chilling, and uh, then suddenly out of nowhere, boom! And we like we both absolutely shat our pants. <laughs> ripped open inside of the tent, and there was nothing there. The first door we opened, we opened one side, and it was like blue skies. We could see everything. We opened the other side, and there's like a black maelstrom just, just like floating past us, maybe 50 meters away, and it just just a small black cloud. But we're up at 5,000 meters, and it's not that far away, and it just Boom. Wow, that's crazy, man. Yeah. So we how, that out. How, how was that to get through that rain, uh, through that storm? Was that easy? Uh, well, it wasn't really a storm. It was just one storm cell, one cloud. Oh, okay, yeah. Because we're on the peak of the mountain next to it. Okay, yeah. Know, so just right next to it. So it was a really huge boom of thunder. It was terrifying. Absolutely yeah, terrifying. that's so, man. Especially because there's no one around if you need help, yeah. right? Uh, the were at this point there was a um, there was a guide and a client uh, who uh, also had their tent slightly above us on the summit of this mountain. So we 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 jumped outside. We put down all the like ice axes or anything metal that had maybe been sticking up or trekking pole or something. We put all that <laughs> on the floor. And then we said, well, if someone does get struck by lightning, it'll, it'll probably be them because they're right on the they were about a meter higher than us. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, okay. Uh, man, I want to know more about South America. How, when, so when was the first time you came here? First time I came to South America was in 2018 with two friends, Mark and Jimmy. We packed all our bags. Again, we, uh, we booked one-way tickets, so we didn't have a, a flight home. We back, backed up all our climbing gear. You know, I had a massive, uh, a huge 80-liter rucksack with a top flap. <laughs> and then another 40 litre rucksack, that was my hand luggage. And then we had big sacks, massive big sacks that we'd carry around with all our clothes in. Uh, ice axes, crampons, ropes, all the protection, everything. like nuts and pans and stuff. We took everything, you know, boots, all the like, huge sleeping bags. I mean, I'm talking about sleeping bags. Well, no. half an 80 litre bag. They're, they're, they're massive, these Arctic yeah. sleeping bags. And then we backpacked in South America for about eight months with all wow. of this kit, which was absolutely crazy, you know, did, did running you around some... trying to catch buses with huge amounts of gear <laughs> hanging off you. And that was that was a crazy experience. Did we, you do we some, did some climbing? Really cool climbing. Yeah, we uh, we started in La Paz. Uh, we flew to La Paz. We acclimatized, you know, and then we started getting uh, taxi rides out to uh, to the mountains around La Paz, Huayna Potosi, and uh, and some of the just like the rocky outcrops in the mountains. You know, we'd just we'd get a taxi to drop us out there, uh, and then we'd take about seven seven days of food or something. Uh, just you know, climb, make a little base camp, and and climb. And when when we're done, we just cool, head back man. to the road, stick our thumbs out, lorries that go past, and we jump in the back. 
you know, you're bouncing along the dirt road and you've just done a little <laughs> sick climbing and you're going back, you're going to treat yourself to a pizza or something when you get back to the city. And we'd yeah. always get dropped in El Alto as well, you know, because the trucks come in, they all come to El Alto and then we'd be wandering around El Alto trying to find our way back into La Paz, trying to get a lift. With all this climbing gear, like we've got ice axes and we've got like goggles on and stuff. El Alto, El Alto just so people know, it's the airport, right? El Alto is it's kind of like the city, sister city of La Paz. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it's well, that's where the airport is, isn't it? It's got a similar population. Yeah, the airport's up in, in yeah. El Alto. Yeah. But it's uh, La Paz is like a big bowl in the mountains, uh, and it's got all the skyscrapers right in the middle of the bowl, and then all the red brick houses going up the steep sides of the bowl yeah. around it. And then on top is the Altiplano. It's, it's a big, flat desert, basically, at 4,000 meters. And El Alto is sat on the Altiplano, whereas La Paz is in, is in the bowl. Yeah, yeah. And um, okay, so you did you did a bit of eight months traveling in South America as a tourist, and then you came here what a year later to work as a tour guide. Yeah, with Dragoman, my first leading groups and stuff. Uh, yeah. How different was that from being here as a tourist? Uh, it was a very different experience, actually. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Um, and I loved it for, I love both of them for different reasons. You know, I, when I was backpacking on my own, we could, could go completely our own pace. We were free to do whatever we wanted to do. You know, every day you wake up and the world's your oyster. You can go climb in, you can go party and you can meet people. You could, you know, you can go to a museum, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, whereas when you're working, you know, you're living like to give that experience to other people you know it's not about you having a great time you know you do have a great time as well for sure but yeah. that's not what it's about it's about giving that great time to other people yeah so exactly. you go about it a different way and there's just there's a lot of stuff to do when you're running these kind of trips so you know you've got a list as long as your arm and you can't get it all done at once you're having to try and tick off little bits of it in different cities as you go yeah so one of the things i really liked you end up seeing a very different side of a city to where all of your passengers would go. They'd go and see all the, you know, the, the big interesting things or do the activities or, or whatever, do whatever they want to do. But you're looking for truck parts, you know, so you're <laughs> cutting around like the industrial area of a city yeah. uh, on your own, you know. And this could be like, I'm my very first, uh, I started in Brazil in, um, where did I start? Salvador. Okay. And uh, that was an interesting city to uh, to like experience. Like it was my like of the working side of traveling, you know, like, yeah. walking around and like looking for the truck and stuff, or working on the side of the road, things like that. And yeah, it's it's a very interesting. You like go the little truck stops and stuff, like the small food places in these places. Like they're just and people look at you differently, you know. They you do. Can blame <laughs> When you're covered in oil in a pair of swim shorts and like you're just walking around <laughs> looking for stuff, you're you're acting differently. You don't yeah. get hassled in the, in the same way that a tourist does because you're you've got something to do. You yeah, can exactly. and, like someone can see that looking at you. You're about your your business, you know. And 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 uh, well, what's the um, okay? I think this is going to be a tough one. Um, what's the most satisfying part of being an overland tour leader, and what's the least satisfying part? Uh, the, 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 I think the most satisfying part is, um, like when you get good at it and when you feel like when you get comfortable in your job enough to really start focusing on like improving, like 
these trips for your passengers. That's the coolest thing. When when you get good at that, about and you, you know, you work out what people need or or want or how they want things to be, kind of thing, and you just start and and you start surprising people and coming up with extra stuff. You know. Yeah. Yeah, making it your own, and make like, and, and making real connections with people, and just having a great time with them. That's the the best part of it. And what's the least? The, the least satisfying part is that when when you get that first thing and it goes really well, you know, and everyone's had a great time, and then everyone disappears, and then it goes back home after it, you know you make these really great bonds, and you yeah. meet people, and then you've got to move on, you know. I know it's so hard to get used to it, yeah. isn't it? It is, yeah. I think that's one of the reasons that when you work well with someone in the, like these jobs, like with your partner, you get on so well, you become so close, you know, to like a few of the guys I worked with. Uh, yeah, yeah, you man. Know, like I, you, I, you and Sam. Like, you know? Yeah, me and Sam. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like I said, a few of the guys I worked with, I just know that they'll always be there for me and I'll be there for them. Cause, and even though I may have worked with them for like two or three months, but it was just so intense. And you're, you've got it's you two against the world basically because yeah exactly you know, you, like as much as you love the passengers you know they're not they they don't understand what you're doing to run the trip because they can you know they don't see it how can they you know and like it, whereas the person you're working with they're doing it with you it's it's that teamwork you got each other's back and then trying to get stuff done in places in Africa or South America is sometimes you know very frustrating. Yeah, it can feel absolutely impossible until you've done it the whole way, <laughs> until it gets done. Yeah, yeah, of course, man. It just feels like it's never going to work, and, but you know you got to take a different attitude to to it. It was, it, and was there any moment uh, during your <coughs> travels working with uh, with the Overland Company with Dragoman uh, that you thought like, "Fuck, now I'm in a big trouble. I don't know how to get out of it," or in any like proper danger or anything like that. Um, I'd say climbing is where I've probably uh, experienced that the most, rather than like the overlanding. Um, no, because I remember you said something about um, was it Ethiopia where you had like a gun? Oh yeah, yeah. or something. Yeah, okay, I do. Yeah, I know what you're on about. This was uh, yeah, that that okay, that does apply as well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> were, I think because we were talking about the climbing earlier, my mind went to like the avalanches and stuff that I've heard. And oh, seen have you have you seen that. any of those? Well, like, I found it in Kyrgyzstan. We found a human, like a human hand, a human arm. What? Yeah, uh, that's where, so you know. Oh, man, tell me more about that story. I, I can tell both stories if you want. Uh, so we'll start in Kyrgyzstan. Okay. With the human arm, and uh, it was this, so this was after we got down sleeping on that mountain. We'd then been up to six thousand meters on the mountain. We're climbing. We'd made a cache with our uh, with some food, and we buried our tent, and we put it all up there and buried it, marked it with the GPS watch and stuff, and you know, put it up there so we wouldn't have to carry it back up on our summit attempt to give us more more chance of success. And we come back down and we rested right down in the base camp for like three days. So we stayed in the, with the guys and the, some nomads, we stayed in their yurt. They'd been helping us out every time we were in the base camp valley, which is very nice. And then, yeah, we get back up to the ABC and we had another rest day. We go along the glacier, along the moraine, just on a little walk, you know, just to kill some time having a rest yeah. day. Uh, now on this mountain, Lenin Peak, in I think it was 1993, Uh, but around that time, uh, there was what I think is the biggest disaster in mountaineering history 
in terms of number of lives lost at once. Okay. 43 people died wow. on the all at the same time. Uh, an avalanche caused by an earthquake basically shook down the whole of the North Face. Wow. I was talking about earlier. All of that, the earthquake just yeah. shook down all of the ice and it hit the, the advanced base camp, or camp three even, sorry, the one above it. And, you know, that's the camp that the next day we're going to go and sleep in. And 25 years ago, this avalanche had hit it and smashed the camp into the glacier, basically. 43 people lost their lives. Uh, all of their equipment and all the tents just got into the, fell into the crevasses filled with snow and frozen up. Yeah. And then 25 years later, it's all being spat out on the bottom of the moraine because the glaciers moved down the mountain and now cracks are opening up again and it's all coming out. And so we're walking along, just going for you know a little stretch of our legs, and we start to see little bits of like sleeping bag and tent, tent poles, or maybe a, a rusty ice axe kind of thing, an old. And you can see it's old school, you know, all the yeah. boots, the boots and stuff. We started finding, and then we found like an, basically a frozen gnarly bit of flesh. We couldn't tell where it come from, but it was a bit of something human, and we were like, you know, fuck. And then the next thing, you know, we're walking along and it is the hand, like probably one of the most human things, you know. It still had its fingernails. It was all shrunken. The skin was preserved. Was it, it coming out of the ice? Like, yeah, it was just on the moraine. It was not, not all the ice had melted and it was on it, oh. just on some rocks kind oh. of thing, just lying there, a human arm. That was very, very sobering, that's you know. Pretty, it really, it was a reality check as to where we were and what we were trying to achieve. And yeah. Because the next day we were walking, you know, on the next that night, you know, we were going to wake up at one in the morning. Yeah. Because you do all this travel at night time in the mountains, or yeah. when it's dark very early to avoid avalanche risk and things like that. And what did you do? Did you just leave it there, or did you call the, the like? Yeah, we, we walked around and just looked at stuff and thought about it. You know, it's almost like a very morbid museum. You know, and what a tribute yeah. to the, the risks we were taking and the risks these people were taking when they when it happened to them. You know, because yeah, it's a course. it's a sport that you willingly put yourself to, like under directly under these objective risks, whether yeah. they're seracs or avalanche slopes or rockfall. And when we were setting our gear up the next morning, you know, and we can hear tinkling of rock falling down the gullies in way in the distance, or even avalanche noises, or just the sound of ice groaning. And it, the thing about this kind of fear is that it lasted 16 days. Every day I thought I might, you know, it might be that day that you just something goes wrong. And, you you know. Yeah, that's great. fear kind of slow burning, building in, in its intensity. was. But were was you cool. ever in any... Actual risk. Um, Not uh, we, there, we but like in general, in all your climbing. We calculate them. No, it, it all went to plan in the end, you know. Things went well. We got a very good weather window for the summit attempt. The summit, the summit day was still the, like the darkest, bleakest moments in my life, really. Yeah. Uh, you know, we got up at one in the morning. It took almost two hours to get our porridge in us, basically and to get our, our gloves on. And Sai, Sai went for a piss without putting his gloves on outside, and it, uh, his hands got so frozen, it took like 10, 15 minutes for us to warm him back up enough to get in his gloves. Wow. Set off, and I think, so we're, we're up at about 7,000 meters. It's, it's four in the morning. The wind is gusting at about 30 miles an hour. It gives you a wind chill of something like minus 50. 
you know and when that happens it, you just turn your back to it all you've got everything covered your goggles on your face is covered you've got two down jackets and a letter like you know a, a windproof layer on but you just shrink into a tiny little ball and oh it just utterly chills you to the core and you know you just keep chipping away every breath pounding in your head every step an utter battle you know wow and then eventually that went on for five hours you know and then eventually the sun cracked over the horizon and that was one of the most amazing points of my life you know i got onto my knees and i worshipped it it was it was warmth and light coming back and it's cracking over the jagged jagged toothy horizon all these thousands of mountains millions of tons of ice as far as the eye can see that's insane and, man Oh, yeah, the views up there. You know, the view into Kyrgyz, uh, Tajikistan, sorry. Tajikistan yeah. is somewhere I would like to go. And what, what's your... Um, I'm sure you've been, you're like, itching to go out again and explore, you know, when, yeah, the, when, when this whole thing is over. Uh, I've so been thinking a lot, you know. What, <laughs> are, the, what, are, what are the plans? Well, I'd love to go back to South America. I feel like yeah. I've got a lot of unfinished business in South America still, mainly because I've not been to Patagonia. Right. I've spent more than a year of my life in like South America, a year and a half or something, and I've not been to Patagonia, and that's the you know the home of mountaineering in a way. Yeah. In, in South America, it's, a, it's somewhere I've got to definitely experience. Uh, the, Pakistan, wanna... uh, Pakistan is somewhere. That, Pakistan is somewhere me and Simon have talked about in the future. We'd love to go. There's a uh, a lot of amazing mountains I'd like to just see, let alone try and climb. And, yeah. Uh, in Pakistan, the Tango Towers or something like that. And do you want to go back to overlanding or? Uh, in a way, yeah, I would love to do another Dragoman contract. I'd love to finish what I was supposed to be doing. I was I was driving from Khartoum all the way down to Cape Town. Uh, wow. It should have taken about six months. Mm -hmm. That would have been a wicked trip to have actually driven it all myself, you know. Yeah. And to be able to look at Africa on a map and think about the line that I've driven, you know, like I can do with South America. I can look at South America on the map and think about where I've actually driven, you know, and I've gone all over the continent. So it would be really cool to have that opportunity. Equally, I'd love to, I'd really like to start a business myself doing, taking people and sharing these kind of adventurous things I do with, with other people. Yeah, definitely, man. That's a, that's a one thing that's been, well, that's been in my mind as well. Sorry? That's one thing that's been, been sitting on my head as well because I, I've, I've always wanted to do something similar, you know, like take people to... But I, would like to I, I would like to do something off the beating track, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. Something really adventurous. Yeah. Make it small niche and something that's like, you know, ethically pure, as, as pure as you can, you know, with the kind of... Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's hard to... It's hard to like sell this kind of thing though to it is to make it to package it up and to make it some it almost takes it away from what you're trying to sell that you're that you're selling it you know yeah you gotta go it's, find it's the to achieve for themselves but yeah you gotta go find the right market for it but it's how do you do it right it's uh yeah that's something you have to discuss about. about a lot. I've not got an answer to yet, but I'm, I'm getting closer, I think. I'm yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the dream, you know, definitely. I'd love nope. to start a business sharing, sharing adventures with people. And, and let me ask you something, man. I know you love music and you, you play as well. Um, yeah. How does music influences or help you on this, like, climbing expeditions or 
when you're traveling on your own or or playing playing guitar is definitely something that gives me that like five or ten minutes just to have ten minutes to myself you know yeah. if I'm, I'm I'm generally a very sociable person and I, I'm high energy I'm out there doing stuff and meeting people I love that but very occasionally everyone needs like you know oh yeah ten minutes to themselves and that is uh, is something it just resets my mind a bit you know by playing the guitar and just jam by myself for ten yeah. minutes. And then equally, it's something that you can share with other people, which oh, yeah. I experienced with you. Like, that's yeah, incredible. We had. <laughs> like, we had a band, man. <laughs> we incredible. did. Leo and the Dragon Man. We played two bona fide gigs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but I mean, in terms of like when you're traveling or climbing or just sitting on the base camp or, you know, do you listen to a lot of music? Yeah, it, for sure, it, as much as possible. You know, when you're yeah. feeling a bit like stressed out, does it help you? Or when you're driving or when you're cooking or anything like with Dragoman uh, having music on uh, is something that for me is part of life just that's it that's it yeah. when I'm cooking vegetables when I'm in the shower driving you know you've got to have music on all different yeah. kinds of music because I, I believe I believe music is connected to everything we do in life but especially traveling you know music I think they yeah. all put together really well um, I met a guy in Sudan who was really cool, actually. He was from Argentina. You know, I think you'll like this story. Uh, we were in the middle of nowhere in the desert, you know, and we were just staying at the one building that we'd seen kind of all day, you know, and the guy lets us camp just outside and use the showers and stuff, and he was really cool. We had a little fire going. And so we, we'd made our dinner, and we had a, a fire going. And the, this Argentinian guy came out of nowhere, basically. He'd been inside, and he had his little tent inside the courtyard. And he came and sat around on the fire with us. But by pure chance, I was drinking mate when he came out. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I also, I was wearing a poncho that I bought in South, uh, South Daniel um, Poncho. And, uh, <laughs> and I had that cowboy hat as well. <laughs> I was wearing that cowboy hat. <laughs> and, you know, I just looked ridiculous. And he, 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 to him, he's like, bro, you look like a gaucho. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And he goes, oh my God, is that, is that Gerba Mate? I've not drank Mate in years, like, or months or whatever. He's been backpacking. He started um, somewhere further in the Middle East, I think, and he'd come across to Egypt and then into Sudan. Uh, but basically, he'd come into Sudan not realizing that there's basically no ATMs in the whole country. Uh, so you need your cash and he hadn't sorted himself out with cash. He crossed the border, and so he had no money. And so he'd been traveling now for quite a long time by basically hitching lifts and then like playing guitar to people and wow. in exchange for food and somewhere to stay. It, that's all he had was his guitar, basically, a guitar and a tent. That's crazy, man. And he was just like hitchhiking real slow and just getting around off pure goodwill off people, basically, until he, got to, he was trying to get his way to Khartoum. So then he could take some money out. Yeah, and so obviously I, you know, I sat down and you know, I filled the mate, and you know, we sat down for two hours or something chatting, and yeah. I hadn't spoken, I hadn't spoken Spanish for a, a little while at this point because I've left South America, so I have someone to practice with, and and that was really cool. Did you play with him? Oh well, yeah, that's what it, sorry. This was the point, wasn't it? Yeah, he, he was a guitarist, and uh, so I had my little guitar that uh, I bought in PA. In Buenos Aires, uh, and uh, yeah, we jammed, and it, it's that connection you share with people just instantly. You don't don't need to know them, but if you like, if they play guitar, 
Yeah, so this this is what I'm talking about. You know, when I asked you about music, it's like you were in the middle of the desert, yeah. and then suddenly you have a fire going, and you're playing, you're having a little jam with this complete random Argentinian guy, right? Yeah, and that turns out to be a great night. Mm. And and that's that's the mm. oh, <laughs> someone's ringing. <laughs> No, but that's fine, man. Yeah. I wanna, I wanna, um, I wanna finish it because uh, I only have 40 minutes anyway of uh, recording. But um, I would like to ask you a couple more questions. You've been to what three, four continents? I've been to Asia. I've been to Africa. I've been to Europe. And been to North America. America oh, okay. And so South five. America. So five. Yeah, five. Uh, I've not been to Antarctica. And, and I've and I've, been, I've been to Indonesia, but I've not been to Australia. I don't yeah. know if that counts as okay. does Indonesia count as Yeah, well Indonesia is still is it Asia? Oceania or Australasia or is Australasia. <laughs> depends. I've crossed the Wallace line. I've crossed the Wallace line, which okay. is the, the big okay. you know, it's the divide of uh, the fauna from Africa and the fauna from Asia. Yeah. So but my question is, out of all these continents you've been to Can you pick one favorite country in each? In each one? Oh, difficult. Very difficult. Come on, man. You can do it. Uh, well, in Africa, uh, I think I'd have to say Ethiopia was my favorite. I've, you know, I've, I've been to four countries in Africa. Kenya, Ethiopia, Sudan, Egypt, and Morocco, actually. And... Um, Ethiopia was something else. That was a crazy experience. It's such a, a unique place. Mm. So ancient as well. Really interesting. Ancient and probably the most consistently beautifully stunning landscape I've ever, ever experienced. Wow. Every drive day in Ethiopia was stunning. Utterly stunning. The mountains are incredible. And the fields and the path. And it's just a huge, incredible country. Uh, South America, favorite country. This is really hard. This is really hard. I know. South America. I, I think I'm um, a guess for this one. I gotta say Bolivia. Yeah. I gotta say Bolivia. That's what it's I was rough, guess. it's ready. <laughs> Cowboy, you know, it's uh I I've got a lot of time for Bolivia. They're hardy people, but they're amazing as well. Really yeah. passionate and you know, stern on the outside. Yeah, yeah. And um but amazing as soon as you break that like, you know, the shell of the Frosty exterior, maybe you know. Oh, yeah, as soon as you smile at them, they smile back, and it's they beam at you, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, North America. I've only been to Florida, and I was very young, uh, so okay. I can't really give you an answer there. Um, Europe. I'm going to say Italy. Uh, just snap yeah. decision because the food's amazing. It's the food, isn't uh, the it? Mountains, yeah. <laughs> the mountains, the Dolomites, as some of the most beautiful mountains I've ever seen. It's a really special place in the world for me. Uh, I've been there with my family quite a lot of times. Uh, it's somewhere I've seen in the summer and winter. And it's somewhere, you know, when I'm old, I will go to remember my parents, probably. That would be. Oh, yeah. It's a real special place for me. And, and, and Asia? Food is really good. <laughs> in Asia, Indonesia. Indonesia. Mm -hmm. Again, the food is incredible, utterly diverse. Each island has its own personality, language, dialect. Yeah. The wildlife is amazing. The most diverse sea life in the in the world is in Indonesia. The fish life is unparalleled. That's and it's, there's so much exploration that's really wild still to do in Indonesia. There's so many, you know, there's so much to, to yeah. explore there. 
So we have Indonesia, Ethiopia, Bolivia, Italy. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we've got four countries here, and which one of them is your favorite then? In general terms. Indonesia. 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 I've got to say it. Yeah, so it's magical. <laughs> It's such a shame that it's, you know, it's taken advantage of by uh, a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. The rainforest being cut down and the corruption there is horrific. But it is, the people are amazing, the animals, the wildlife, you know. Yeah. And, and, well, it's been a pleasure, yeah. Thank yeah, you for having man, me. It's, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much again for doing this with us. Um, I'm going to... Um, it will be a pleasure to put it up on our podcast, you know, and have you there. And yeah, maybe we can come for a second episode with you. Like, yeah, I feel like I've got more stories. Yeah, I mean, for 30 minutes or 40 minutes is not enough for you, man. <laughs> cool. Okay. Nice to see you. All right, man. Uh, everyone else, have a great day. Yeah, you too. Ciao. Have a good day. Bye bye.